Um, let's start uh, tonight uh, with the, we've, as we've been doing, with the uh, going to a verse of scripture and just reviewing a little bit about the uh, faith rest drill. In Romans chapter 8, once again, we'll look at the sequence of these verses. Each one of them is a powerful promise of, um, can be used as a tool in uh, everyday life. And uh, we've gone through verse 28 of Romans 8. Um, we've looked at verse 32. He who spared not his own son, but little over, delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Uh, we've looked at uh, verse 34 a little bit last time, uh, that G- Christ Jesus is he who died, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also uh, intercedes for us. And since we've gone through the session of Christ, the ascension and session, uh, in the fall of this year, uh, notice that verse 34 presumes that the session has occurred, that Christ is at the Father's right hand, and that because he is at the Father's right hand, he's performing a function, which he would not do had he not ascended and and, uh, been seated at the Father's right hand. And, of course, then from verse 35 on, it's talking about God's sovereign, omnipotent love which is sort of ironic because if there's one place in Christian theology where unbelief likes to drive a wedge, it's trying to argue that because God is sovereign and he is over everything and he's omnipotent and he's over everything, how can he also be a God of love? Um, the, uh, the, the debate tape that I played in church two weeks ago, remember, it um, basically showed this, this unbeliever saying that he would sue God for negligence for being asleep at the wheel during Auschwitz. And that's, that's a classic. That is a classic attack against the Christian position, trying to pit love on one hand against God's omnipotence on the other. And it's striking that in this verse, of all the attributes of God um, that we see listed here, uh, we find that it's God's love and that it's God's power. Um, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And the idea there is that tribulation will not, distress will not, persecution will not, famine will not, nakedness will not, peril will not, and the sword will not. And all these things we overwhelmingly conquer him who loved us. Verse 37, for I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And by the way, notice in verse 39, observantly, every one of those things that are listed fall on which side of the created creature boundary? Remember the creator-creature distinction. Every one of those things listed there fall on the creature side, not the creator side. So the reason these verses have such power to them is because there's powerful theology embedded inside of them. And you can't be trusting them, can't be focusing on them without at the same time coming into consistency with heavy Christian doctrine. So anyway, that's uh, that's our verse for the first section for tonight. Um, any one of those is uh, a neat thing to remember uh, when you're in kind of a, a jam. 
All these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. So, uh, we'll have a word of prayer and go on to the lesson at hand. Father, we thank you for our time together tonight, and we ask that your Holy Spirit, who brought us to Christ, who opened our hearts to the gospel, who called us to faith, would also tonight teach us about the mysteries of history and prepare us so that as we continue our study uh, through the church age, we will understand the unique things that are happening over this uh, some now 20 century long span of time. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're um, looking uh, at the end tonight of this appendix and the notes. Uh, we've looked, uh, what we're trying to do here is we are trying to go over, in, uh, putting it in a little perspective, uh, we've looked on a timeline of history. We've just covered the ascension and session of the Lord Jesus Christ at the Father's right hand. And I'll get this in focus here. So, we've seen that that accomplished a powerful thing. We remember that when the Lord Jesus Christ sat at the Father's right hand, that he, at that point, uh, received the rank, a higher rank than any other member of the human race has ever received. And at that point, he outranks archangels and all the other heavenly beings are now underneath a representative of the human race. So as the Son of Man, as a representative of the human race, he is the head of the entire cosmos tonight. It's run not by a Martian or a Venusian or somebody from Galaxy 674. It is the universe is, at, is steered by a member of the human race from planet Earth. So with all due respect to science fiction, truth is stranger than fiction. The universe is run by the God-man. And he has authority and power over all principalities and power over all other creatures. And that's why the basis of this verse tonight. Our next thing that we're going to start next week, and in preparation for next week, although I didn't have any notes in final form to be handed out, if in preparation for next week you would read Acts chapter 2, because the next event is going to be Pentecost. So we looked at the session of Christ, we're going to look at Pentecost, and as we approach Pentecost, obviously we're moving now from the Old Testament uh, era, we're moving from the Gospels now into the period of the Epistles, and we're going to study the Church Age. And because we're going to study the Church Age, we are automatically involved in the theolo theological differences between classical Reformed theology and dispensational theology. So that's why this appendix, the Reformed theology versus dispensational theology. And here, whereas they both agree as to the method of salvation, they both agree the scriptures are inerrant, they both have different interpretations of the mission, the nature, and destiny of the church. And we have already covered some of those differences. We've covered Reformed theology, and last week we began with dispensational theology on page 11 and 12. 
And we said that one of the issues that dispensationalism is known for is the fact that covenant language in the scriptures, that is, the Old Testament covenants, must be interpreted literally. And that is important because covenants in scripture are akin to contracts today. And no man in his right mind signs a mortgage agreement, signs a loan lease agreement, or enters into any other kind of a written contract and have the other party interpret it metaphorically. I mean, that would be cool if you could interpret a loan agreement metaphorically. But you don't. And the point is that the God has made contracts down through history with man. And we went over those contracts. Remember last time we went through the Abrahamic contract given in Genesis 12, 15, and 20, 17, and 22. We went through the Palestinian contract or the land contract, Deuteronomy chapter 30. We went through the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel chapter 7. We went, it was interpreted in Psalm 8 by 89. Then we went into the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. Do you remember? What did we say of every one of those covenants? Were, they give, was it, were those contracts made with the church or were they made with the nation Israel? They were all made with the nation Israel. The church didn't even exist then. And therefore, the fulfillment of those covenants is going to be to the nation Israel. And in the Q&A after class, remember last week, uh, Debbie raised the question that, well, uh, then how do we participate uh, as Christians in all the benefits that we obviously participate in if, we don't, if the contracts aren't made with us? Well, the answer is because of our union with Jesus Christ. That's the basis. He is part and parcel because he's a Jew, because he is of the seed of Abraham physically as well as spiritually. He, he benefits from them and he can share those benefits with us. But we're grafted in. That's the language of Romans chapter 9. And it's humbling to understand that. Is that just because we're walking around breathing doesn't give us access to God. And we come into access and into these blessings of the church age uh, that were given to Israel uh, because of our union with Christ. All right. When we went through this, we talked about... Uh, the literal interpretation, and remember when we went through Reformed theology, I showed you how one of their hang-ups is when they see the formula X fulfills Y, and that formula occurs again and again in the New Testament, they interpret that to mean that this X, this New Testament event, X is always some New Testament event, and Y is some Old Testament event, when they see that formula, they automatically assume that if an Old Testament event has been fulfilled, that that's it. There's no future fulfillment. All the fulfillment stuff is finished and over. And they also interpret it to mean that these covenants are fulfilled every time they see this word. And you remember that we gave an illustration and I did, uh, I gave it one night, but I also put it in the notes on page 13, that a classic counterpoint to that argument is in Jeremiah 31 versus Matthew 2, where in Matthew 2, when the babies are killed in the genocide, two years and younger, every male baby was killed by Herod. Um, when that happened, 
Matthew records the event and then he adds, and thus it was fulfilled that Rachel was weeping in Ramah. Well, that was a reference to Jeremiah 31, if you remember, and it was not a fulfillment of prophecy, although Matthew says it fulfills. So how do we interpret, this is the question, how do we interpret this verb? That's the issue. It doesn't always mean to fulfill prophecy. For the one reason is that the passage in Jeremiah isn't a prophecy. It's a historical description of the captives uh, rendezvousing before the long march over into the Mesopotamian Valley in the fall of the northern kingdom, fall of the northern and southern kingdom there, when Israel collapsed. So here uh, you have a historical observation in a town called Ramah, north of Jerusalem, and Matthew comes along and he applies the passage to Bethlehem, which is south of Jerusalem. So you don't have the right place. You don't have any babies killed in Jeremiah, but you've got babies killed in Matthew, 5, Matthew 2. So in what sense, then, does Matthew use the verb fulfill? He uses the verb fulfill as a pattern or an analogy. So we have to be careful when we see that word fulfill, and I'm going to take you to another one tonight to again prove the point. If you'll turn first to Matthew 2, verse 15, and after you get there, turn back in the Old Testament to Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. So hold both passages open just so you can flip between them. If you have to look at the table of contents to find Hosea, that's fine. The important thing is just to get there. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, and Matthew chapter 2, verse 15. Now, if you turn first to Matthew chapter 2, and you have any kind of a study Bible or any, any Bible that has these little references in it, you should be able to see a letter or a number in your Bible in Matthew 2.15 that should take you to the marginal reference. And in the marginal reference, you should see uh, Hosea chapter 11, verse 1 referred to. Okay? Now, let's look at the context in Matthew 2. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 14, or even go back up to verse 13, Joseph was warned in a dream to get baby Jesus out of there. There was going to be a genocide. And in order to survive physically, Joseph and Mary had to take Jesus somewhere. This is not Christmas. This is a year or two after some time has elapsed, and the problem is, where did he get the money for the trip? Because he had to stay down there. And of course, you know where he got the money from, because of the wise men who came and gave them this expensive stuff. So it's really the, how the Lord provided for that trip. So in verse 14, he arose and he took the child and his mother by night, and they departed for Egypt. <clears throat> And, there was there, and, and was there until the death of Herod. 
that what was spoken of by the Lord through the prophet might be, and there's our verb again, the verb fulfill. That was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Out of Egypt did I call my son. Now, if you flip over to Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, Here's another example of how Matthew uses the verb. This is why, folks, when you study the scriptures, you have got to study text after text after text. You can't just go zipping into a passage of scripture and think you know what what you're reading. It doesn't work that way. Now, some passages, they're easy, they're obvious. When you get into this kind of stuff, you don't look at a concordance for two and a half minutes and then conclude that you know what the passage means. This takes some study, and it takes some systematic study and approach to the whole thing. Sometimes you have to go back to the original languages. If you don't know the original languages, you have to go back to tools that do use the original languages. That's just the nature of the game here. This is scripture written historically in a, in a certain language. But most of the time, the problems are that we don't spend time looking at usage. Word meanings are determined in scripture by usage. And you can't find usage until you find verse after verse after verse of usage. <clears throat> so that's what we're doing with this verb fulfill. In Hosea verse, <clears throat> chapter 11, verse 1, It says, when Israel was a youth. Is that talking about the Messiah, or is that talking about the nation? The Messiah isn't even in here. This is Israel. This is the nation. When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, in terms of the nation, Israel, what does the passage mean in Hosea? Let's think about this. Any Jew would know immediately what that passage meant. Let's go back to the Old Testament again. Here are events. When did God call Israel out of Egypt? It's the Exodus. So this is talking about the Exodus. Is this a prophecy? Not a prophecy. No prophecy in this verse. This is a description, just like the passage in Jeremiah, of a portion of Israel's history. Okay? So, it refers to something past, not something future. Out of Israel I called my son. So now we come into the New Testament and we see this thing of the Lord Jesus Christ and Matthew used the formula X fulfills Y. Turn back to Matthew now. That which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet... Now, for those of you who have friends or or you're personally troubled with a doctrine of inerrancy in Scripture, here's a good verse for you. Because that was a historical record put together, humanly speaking, by unnamed prophets. Hosea being one of them, obviously. And these guys edited the text and they wrote the text. I mean, it wasn't a a light beam from a cumulus cloud that came down and, and wrote the text. They wrote it with on parchment and, and, and they just put it together like any other text 
But you see, the Bible says that God worked in and through these prophets. So that's why Matthew, in verse 15, that which was spoken of by the Lord. It wasn't just the prophet Hosea that was writing this. The Lord was speaking. The Lord spoke through the prophet Hosea. You see, this is not some fundamentalist uh, street front church idea. Today, if you go out and you argue for inerrant, authoritative scripture, I guarantee you that people will freak out. It's an intellectual um, scandal, an inerrant Bible. It's a scandal among the world. And, and you will be treated like this, you're some right-wing, weird, religious fanatic. And the thing to do, if, if that's the kind of reaction you get, you can say, well, I don't understand how you can be so historically stupid. Because if you read the text, that's what Matthew believed. And this is a guy who wrote a few centuries before either of us breathed. So that being the case, it's not some right-wing fundy that's generating this idea. The idea goes back to Matthew. In fact, you can trace the idea all the way back in the Old Testament. So argue with the Old Testament. Don't blame me. Say, this is what you can do. Get, it, get the monkey off your back and put it on the back of the people who wrote the Bible. And let the person... I See, they don't want to do that. And here's why. Because all people are sinners. And we don't like to be held accountable for our sin. And when we rebel against God and mouth off, it creates a problem with our conscience. So the way we kind of put some oil and grease on the whole thing is to pretend that this idea is that one Christian who happens to be standing in front of us is that person's idea. You know, I'm, I'm open-minded. It's that narrow, bigot's idea. But you see, you can't let a person pin this on you. You don't let a person do this to you. This is not your idea. It is not my idea. It is the idea of Scripture. And it's been around for a number of years. And there is a place for some ridicule. The fact that an educated person can come up to you and make such a stupid statement shows you there's something lacking in their education. Of course, we all know. Too busy putting condoms on and not enough, long enough time reading the scripture or reading period in class. I don't read anymore. So the point is that we go back in our arguments to what the text says and, and it takes the heat off. Hey, I didn't write it. Go argue with the text. Now, what have you done? You've stepped back. Now they've got to argue with the text. They've got to argue with God in the Bible. They've got to argue with his words, not arguing with you. So that's a way of moving out of the line of fire and putting, letting them, sh go ahead. You want to shoot God? Go ahead, shoot. Well, blah, blah, see? We don't want to quite show our aggression that way. So watch these verses like this. It was spoken of by the Lord through the prophet Hosea who was describing a physical point of history in the nation Israel. It was not a prophet. It was not a, a, a prophecy. prophet wrote it, but it wasn't a prophecy. So, how do we explain the verb fulfill in verse 15? 
the verb fulfill must refer in some sense to an analogy, and we have here one of the Matthew's techniques of presenting Jesus Christ. Matthew is going to say, if you take the history of Israel and you take the history of the Messiah and you match them up, lo and behold, there's parallel after parallel after parallel after parallel. So went Israel, so goes Israel's Messiah. And his, his part of his argument is to authenticate Jesus Christ as the Messiah by arguing that this man's life parallels the nation Israel. Israel was in the desert for 40 years. Jesus Christ was tempted for 40 days. Israel came out of Egypt. Jesus Christ came out of Egypt. And so on and so on and so on. So when he says fulfill, we might use a different verb. Instead of using the verb fulfill, it would probably communicate more clearly what Matthew is doing here is by saying that Messiah or Israel typifies the Messiah. The nation Israel's history typologically shows the Messiah's life or the Messiah's life is reflected in the history of the nation Israel. So that's the meaning of it. Now you see, once you are careful and you build meaning out of a text, study of the text, then you can say, okay, we believe in literal fulfillment of prophecy and all these things in the New Testament where you see analogy, fulfillment by analogy or fulfillment by type, doesn't have any bearing on the theological debate at hand. They're actually, all, all these passages are irrelevant. The issue is, how was Old Testament bona fide prophecy fulfilled? How was that fulfilled? Was Jesus born in Bethlehem or was Jesus born in Ramah? Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Why was Jesus born in Bethlehem, not anywhere else? Because of Micah's prophecy. Oh, Bethlehem of Ephrata. So it was literal. It wasn't, you know, the house of bread. The name, the very name. The house of bread. So... That passage was fulfilled literally. That's what we mean when we say that if God made a covenant in the Old Testament and the covenant has terms in it, how else are you going to tell that the covenant has been fulfilled if you don't interpret it literally? See, you can't do it. And if you can't do that, then how do you tell whether God is faithful to what He promised? So you can only measure performance by literal meaning of words. So, enough said now with that point about dispensationalism. Now in the notes, if you'll notice in verse, four, uh, verse 14, page 14, you'll go and you'll see that the second point about dispensationalism. Dispensationalism is characterized Someone asked last week, you know, what is a dispensationalist? Okay, a dispensationalist is one who believes in literal fulfillment of the covenants of the Old Testament. Number two, they believe that the purpose of history is doxological. Now, let me explain that. The ultimate purpose of history, according to Reformation theology is the redemption of man. Classical Reformed theology is very 
um, admirable in saying that the redemption of man is important. Very admirable. Now, the problem is that they were so fixated on redemption, which obviously is not a bad thing to be fixated on, but keep in mind the historical argument, the historical argument behind Reformed theology was Roman Catholicism. And because the debate between Rome and Germany, and between Rome and Switzerland, was a debate between how is a man saved? That was the debate. So redemption was the center of this turmoil in the 16th and 17th centuries. So out of that, they were fixed on this, and so they have come down in history to say that the real reason for history is to show God's grace, show God's character by redemption. Now, that's not false. That's a true statement. However, we would argue that if this circle represents the purpose of history, redemption is part of that circle, but not all of that circle. The book of Revelation. There's two reasons why Jesus Christ is praised in the book of Revelation. One is because thou hast created things, and the other one is because you have redeemed us. So 50% of the praise is not for redemption. 50% of the praise is for being created. And this goes back to this diagram that we've shown over and over and over again. So we'll show it again, because it's an important diagram. As I said in church the other day, that diagram probably is derived from three to 4,000 pages of reading, summarized on one sheet. There's a lot of stuff packed in that diagram. It looks on the surface just like a few lines. But behind that diagram is a lot of heavy ideology and very offensive ideology if you learn how to read the diagram right. Because it is exclusivistic. It is saying outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you do not have any hope without God, without hope in the world and that there is no solution to all of life's problems outside of Christ. Here's why. Because in the pagan position, good and evil have no beginning, and good and evil have no end. It's just a mix that goes on forever and ever and ever. Now, in the Bible, we have a beginning right here, the fall, and we have an end or a terminus. What does that mean? It means that evil in the Bible is bracketed. Evil is boxed in to a finite section of history. So, the question we want to look at tonight is, after this point of judgment, after good and after evil are permanently separated, and history has been resolved because the mess that was created here is finally cleaned up over here, when that happens, let's put our, our thinking caps on here now. When that point is reached, if the ultimate purpose of history is redemption, what's the purpose of living afterwards? You see, the point is, it goes back to the idea, well, why are you saved? Well, I'm saved to grow in order to win other people to Christ. 
who are then saved to grow to win other people to Christ, who are saved to grow to win other people of Christ, and then history ends, and what do we all do? Well, we all know that the book of Revelation, for one, that looks beyond, has us worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ and dwelling in the eternal state, and so on and so on. So if on page 14, you see where I quote uh, Dr. Pilkey, and he's speaking here in terms of the book of Revelation, but I'm taking it in the larger context of the end of history. It furnishes an authoritative context larger than the gospel of salvation and larger than salvation itself. As mortals, we remain in various kinds of trouble and salvation strikes us as an all-consuming universal concern. Now, this is a classic sentence. It starts right here. I love this sentence. The angels of heaven have never been saved. The demons cannot be saved. The redeemed in heaven have nothing from which to be saved. If life in the resurrected state has a purpose, goals must exist beyond salvation. Because the book of Revelation has been given to us in our present mortal condition, we are able to anticipate these goals despite our natural preoccupation with personal salvation. So that's all we're saying here, is that the purpose of history is larger than salvation. The purpose of history involves angels. The purpose in history involves resurrected people who will never fall for billions and billions of years. The creation forever in resurrected bodies who will never be subject to death, no more sorrow, no more tears, and so on. Now, what's all that about? Surely the purpose of history hasn't come to an end with, with, the, with the final judgment here, there's an eternal existence on. What's the purpose of that? In one sense, it's history, isn't it? It's the progress of time because we're creatures and we dwell in time. So that's the point about the ultimate purpose to history is doxological. Now, what do we mean by that word? We mean it's to praise God. Doxological means the purpose of history is to reveal God to his creatures, to know him ever more perfectly, and know him more and more and more. And the neat thing is that we will never be bored. There will always be some new depth to God's character that we've never seen before. Lots of surprises forever and ever, very pleasant surprises to understand the nature of God and reflect back someday upon this life, which we will then consider to be a very, very brief moment in our long-term existence. And you see, what this viewpoint does, it starts to trivialize what we make big issues out of. See, we tend, because we're concerned with the time, the moment, right now, right here, we tend, and because this is where the pain is, we get bent out of shape and we, we blow up these problems to immense proportions. Well, what God does in the scriptures, he cuts them down to an atomic sizes by saying, look, don't focus on this. There's an eternity out here in the future. And it goes on forever, millions and millions of times more than any short-term pain and so forth. That's why Paul could say in the New Testament, I count it joy and so on because the sufferings of the present time I consider insignificant. How could he ever say that? Is he saying that he denies pain? No. Paul got pain. I mean, the guy got beat up. He got stoned. He got thrown in jail. Paul knew what pain was. 
He went through all this. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that if you have the eternal perspective, then what happens? It gets back to that diagram I always draw about the amoeba. The amoeba swallows up. So here with the eternal perspective, we have a pain problem. We have a problem in our life that seems dominating when it can be totally encircled with an eternal perspective. And that eternal perspective is for what purpose? To know God. This has powerful ramifications in how we study history. This has powerful ramifications about the end and purpose of every area of our life. This argues that the ultimate purpose of everything, everything, whether it's salvation or hell, everything has as its purpose the glory of God. Now, there's another feature to history that we've covered before that emerges in all this discussion. Turn to Matthew chapter 11. Since we're in Matthew. And in Matthew chapter 11, we have an aspect of history that strikes often, uh, it, uh, to some proponents of Reformed theology, this sort of passage becomes very difficult for them to accept emotionally. And the reason is that it seems to teach that history is contingent. Look at Matthew chapter 11, verse 14. If you care to accept, it isn't in the original, so I have to figure out what the object of the verb accept is. If you care to accept, he himself is Elijah, who was to come. Now again, you should have a note in your study margin somewhere where it says who was to come, and it should show you the reference of where that comes out of the Bible, which is Malachi chapter uh, 3 and, and reference in chapter 4, Old Testament book. The idea was that before an untimeline, now I want, I want to show this tonight because when we get to Pentecost, if you don't, if you don't have this background, you're going to lose it when we get into studying Pentecost. Uh, I, believe me, Pentecost is a very complicated event because the Israel's involved, the church is involved, half a prophecy is involved, half a prophecy is not involved, there's something that happens in Pentecost that wasn't prophesied ever, and all these elements are mixed together. So we're going to have slow going through Pentecost. But what we want to notice is, in the Old Testament, the picture was that time was going to go on, the Messiah was going to come, and when the Messiah came, there would be various judgments that would happen. This would be the end of history. See, there was that, that's the idea right there. The coming of the Messiah would end history and would bring in, of course, actually, I should, drew this inaccurately, it should be this way, the coming of the Messiah would bring in this kingdom which was kind of fuzzed up with the eternal state. So, that's the Old Testament picture. Now, in that Old Testament picture, prior to the Messiah, Elijah was to come. 
Elisha was one of the great Old Testament prophets. And he was to show up in time with the Messiah as an announcer to the nation Israel. That's the Old Testament prophecy. So now the question comes up, when Jesus Christ came, it wasn't Elisha, it was John the Baptist. So the disciples here are saying, if you be the Christ, if you be the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, then where's Elijah? And what Jesus is arguing for here is if you accept this gospel, if you accept the gospel of the kingdom that I'm offering you, the kingdom can come and John is Elijah. Now, we know, in fact, that Jesus Christ, at this point, we'll get right in that section of Matthew where they're not going to accept. And so what happens historically is this. You have the Old Testament. You have the Messiah come. And I'll draw that arrow half because the Messiah was rejected, nationally speaking. And we know now that there's an inter-advent period followed by a second coming of the Messiah. And in between, we have the church age, the inter-advent age. Was this foreseen in the Old Testament? You can say, yeah, in some sense, because there's pictures of the suffering Messiah and pictures of the glorious Messiah. The suffering Messiah was to be Joseph. The glorious Messiah was to be David. So they actually had, they, they couldn't get this together. And they kept talking about two Messiahs because they couldn't figure out how this all could happen to one guy. Well, it happened to one guy in two different moments of history. So, the point is that when Jesus Christ came, initially, this whole picture was not seen. So, I'm going to cover this with red, a circle. This wasn't seen in Matthew 3 when John was preaching, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. What is he saying? He's saying that the kingdom is at hand. That, the Old Testament kingdom, is at hand. Now watch this, because this is where, if you follow this, you'll see why I'm saying dispensational Reformed theology has some, some really profound differences in how they interpret this thing. If you look at the top diagram, where is there room for the cross? It doesn't look like there's any room for the cross. When Jesus Christ came, in other words, what would have happened had the nation accepted him as the Messiah? There would have been no rejection. And you can only speculate as to, well, gosh, you know, you can't have the kingdom without salvation, can't have salvation without the cross, can't have forgiveness without blood atonement. Well, where does the blood atonement get involved? I have no idea. So, had the nation accepted Jesus Christ, it would have introduced a crisis over, well, then, where's the rejection that leads to the cross that leads to our salvation? But we know historically what happened was what happened in the red, don't we? Jesus Christ came. He offered himself. He, John the Baptist said, the kingdom is far away, centuries down the road. No, that's not the preaching you see in the Gospels, is it? It's an imminent kingdom. The kingdom has come. The kingdom is here. 
And if the kingdom is here, and not 20 centuries down the road, here is the Messiah. It's all possible for you, O Israel, if you would accept your Messiah. World peace could come. The culmination of history could come right now. That's the idea that is being preached. So if that were to be the case, and Elijah has to precede the Messiah, who has to precede the kingdom, then John the Baptist, the guy, has to be Elijah. So that's why Jesus says, if you care to accept, if you as a nation were to accept me, if you were to accept the message of the kingdom, then John the Baptist is Elijah. And it does turn out, by the way, that both these guys have a very similar spirit or personality. Both of them were ascetics. Both of them were guys that had absolute courage to go up against everybody in their day. Both of them could care less what anybody thought about them. And they went on teaching the Word of God anyway. And both of them were not very successful in the sense of humanly speaking. They didn't turn the nation around. Elisha didn't. And John the Baptist didn't. They were both uh, fanatics. They were both extremists. They were both guys that were just really both out of the mainstream. And so there, there is kind of a spooky relationship going on between these two guys. And yet, you can read in the Gospels when the men come up to John, they say, John, are you Elijah? He says, no. So John didn't see himself as Elijah. So there's a whole bunch of mystery in here, and the only way you can synthesize all the Scripture is to say that there was a genuine offer going on here. This isn't just theater. There was a genuine offer that's going on here. John is in a position to fulfill the prophecy of Elijah. But the nation rejected, and so now we have the suffering part of the Messiah's prophecies fulfilled in the cross because he's rejected by the nation. And then we have this strange inter-Advent age. And then we have the second coming of Jesus Christ. Second coming. First coming. Second coming. Split apart. Now where Reformed theology really has a problem with this, it goes back to this point that we just got through making. What did we say is the ultimate purpose of history? It's doxological. What do we say that the Reformed theologian believes is the ultimate purpose of history? Redemptive. Well now, can you imagine if you were a Reformed theologian and you believe passionately with all your heart that all of history is focused upon the cross of Christ and redemption and you hear somebody like what I'm doing tonight come up We make it just as a, as a secondary play after the primary play failed. And I think you can understand if, if you see their, their whole approach to one simple sovereign plan that goes on and, and bam, you get involved in this kind of a mess and you think, oh man, it can't be that way. So, in order to resolve it from their point of view, what they say is that this is a wrong picture, that this actually was true all along. And when you see these fulfillments, this inter-Advent age is the fulfillment of all those kingdom promises.
because they want to smooth this over and make it a nice, smooth approach. All right. Second purpose, then, of dispensationalism is it's doxological. The ultimate purpose of history is doxological. And why? Because there's all these other things that go on and happen in history. Now, finally, the third thing, and that's in our last point, and that is, in page 15, that is the separation of the church and Israel. One of the distinctives between dispensational theology and reform theology is that Israel is a separate people of God. The church is distinct from them. They are two different groups of people. Why do we say two different groups of people? Because the saints in Israel were related to God through the covenants. The church is not related through the covenants. The church is related through Christ who is related to the covenants. Moreover, there's actually three peoples of God. Can anybody guess what the third people are? A third group of people who are redeemed in history. Not Jews and not Christians in the church age. Let's go back to Old Testament history again. See if we can use some... Think about what the scriptures are saying here. Let's go back to that sequence. Look at that sequence carefully. Who was the first Jew? Abraham. Were there believers before Abraham? Where are those guys? Were they in the biblical covenants to Israel? No. They're Gentiles. So now we've got three peoples of God, don't we? We have Gentiles. We have Jews. And we have Christians. Now, what happens, again, when this is taught, Reformed people say, oh my, my, you've got three ways of salvation. Now, believe me, this is the point. I give you a footnote where you can see where the guy says it. John Gerstner. He argues that dispensations have to allow for multiple ways of salvation. Now, how you go logically from three peoples of God to three ways of salvation, I've never figured this out. Now, I know where they're coming from. They're saying that when we say that Israel is related to God through the covenants, that we're not making Christ the issue. We're not making the cross the issue. Well, the cross wasn't the issue in the Old Testament, was it? I'm not saying they weren't saved by then. The, the benefits of the cross that was yet to happen was certainly counted for them, even though it hadn't happened yet. But can you really believe that if you took a tape recorder and interviewed Abraham, that he could tell you all about how Jesus would be crucified outside the city of Jerusalem? I doubt it. The content of their faith in the Old Testament probably did not include what we consider to be the gospel. Okay? Were they saved by faith? You bet. Couldn't be saved by works, could they? So they were saved by faith. Well, how could they be saved by faith and have a different kind of gospel than we have? Because they didn't have all the revelation we have. Their content on their revelation that they knew, was it less or greater than ours? Had to be less than ours. All right, so their content of their gospel was less than our content of the gospel, so they had different gospel. 
Now, I'm not saying there's three different ways to be saved here. Think of Noah. Think of the Gentiles prior to Abraham. What do they know about this? Probably even less. So there's three different peoples brought to salvation by faith and by faith alone, but with a different content to the gospel that they had to trust. Now, objectively, legally, and as far as the judicial side of it, were they saved by the finished work of Christ? Absolutely. The work of Christ on the cross was applied to all three peoples. None of them are ever saved apart from the, the objective work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's just that in becoming believers, they came by three different routes. Three different Gospels. Three different levels of revelation. That's all we're saying about when we argue there's separate identities for Israel and the church, and we should actually say there's separate identity for the Gentiles. Now, how in the Old Testament do we know there's separate identities for the Gentiles? Let's think about it for a moment. Let's go back to that Old Testament period of history where the prophets spoke. Remember, as Israel declined... Most of you have had little exposure to those Old Testament men. Some of you had a lot of exposure to those Old Testament prophets. What can you say about what they said about the nations around Israel? Did they make prophecies about the destiny of Babylon? Did they make prophecies about the destiny of Assyria? Did they make prophecies about the destiny of Moab? Surely they did. Well, then who are they talking about? They're talking about God's plan for those Gentiles. So does God have a plan for the Gentiles? Yes. What were the prophets talking about? Does God have a plan for Israel? Yes, because they addressed Israel. Does God have a plan for the church? Yeah. Where do we find the plan for the church? New Testament epistles. So there's three different people believing three different gospels with three different histories. So all the dispensationalists are saying here is not there's two or three different ways of salvation. We're just simply saying that God has multiple parts in his overall plan. Just like a program has subroutines in it. Just like plans have different parts. Artists paint different parts in their painting. Different colors. That's all we're saying. So we don't have to get livers in a quiver over the fact that dispensationalists have separate identities for Israel and the church. Okay? Well, we're finishing tonight then this section. And if you'll turn to the last page of the notes, we want to make just a few closing remarks prior to getting into, for next time, into Pentecost. At the top of the page... I want to you read with me as I go through this and I'll point some things out to you. Dispensational theology recognizes multiple peoples of God. Salvation is always the same way in this view by substitutionary blood atonement. But those who are saved do not form one homogeneous elect people of God. God has separate identities for ancient Gentile nations, which were addressed nation by nation, should be in the text, in the Old Testament prophets. The second one is Old Testament Jews. And the third one is New Testament Christians. 
Now, why have I made such a big point about this? Look at the next paragraph. The distinction between Israel and the church is discussed, we're going to discuss it later. It is important, however, and here's the key, here's the key sentence, here's where it practically impacts your life. It is important to clarify the modus vivendi utilized by each group for daily living and obedience to God. Modus vivendi is the way of life. It's God's will for your life. Now, if you really believe there's only one people of God, you better go find a temple and some sheep. Because God says to the Israelites, you're supposed to worship in a temple and you're supposed to slaughter sheep for your sin. Do you do that? No. Any Reformed theologian you see doing that? No. Why? It was God's will for those people, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, that's ceremonial. They'll put that away. Yeah, but if they put the ceremonial away, they have to put the moral away. You have to put the whole law code away. Well, we don't want to get rid of the Ten Commandments. Let the ACLU do that. Well, the issue here is that it's the modus vivendi of the Old Testament saint in one compartment, taught in the Old Testament. The modus vivendi of the church age, another compartment. Now, are there some things that are similar? Yeah. Old Testament saints were taught not to steal. Are we taught to steal? No, except in public school when they get rid of the Ten Commandments. But the idea here is that there are similar elements, right? There's an element, don't steal here, Old Testament saint. Don't steal here, New Testament saint. So the modus vivendi are alike in some areas. But now let's get to some of the different areas. Did any Old Testament saint... Pray to God in the name of Jesus Christ. Oops. No, I guess not. Different modus vivendi. Was any Old Testament saint filled with the Holy Spirit like the New Testament saints? No. Jesus said the Holy Spirit was with you, preposition, and he will be in you. Two different prepositions, two different modus vivendi, two different relationships with the Holy Spirit. Was any Old Testament saint elect in Christ? Well, elect to salvation, but elect in the person of Christ. See, that's a question. What Old Testament saint was disciplined by the Holy Spirit sent from Jesus Christ down to planet Earth? Most Old Testament saints, in, in their discipline, they had personal discipline, of course, Book of Proverbs, but they also had discipline in the hands of nations. So we could go on and on and on with that. But my point here is to prepare us now, as we go to Pentecost, we're going to start to see this happen. You're going to start, we're going to start, we've seen Christ resurrected, we've seen him ascend into heaven, and we're going to start seeing him now send the Holy Spirit. When he sends the Holy Spirit, the nation of Israel is going to get one last opportunity. Peter's going to preach, not to the church, and it's not an evangelistic message, in Acts 2. In Acts 2, if you read carefully the text of Acts 2, you will notice startling similarities with John the Baptist. That Peter's address is addressed to Israel in Acts 2, and it is addressed in almost similar terminology to John the Baptist in Matthew 3. So we have this peculiar thing 
that happens early on in Acts. It's all Israel-centered, Israel-centered, Israel-centered. Then what happens as you go through the book of Acts? Now all of a sudden, we, more and more we hear about the church. We hear more about the church. We hear more about the church. And then finally, at the end of Acts, Jesus hasn't come back. The kingdom hasn't come to Israel. And the church is there. Now, when did the church get started in all this? Well, we're going to see, yeah, it got started in Pentecost, but nobody recognized what was going on there. Acts is a book of transition between Israel and the church. And this is why you have all sorts of kooky people running around the church age that try to go back to the book of Acts and derive procedures. You can't do that, folks. The book of Acts is a transition document moving from one modus vivendi to the other modus vivendi. And that's what makes it so complicated. Acts is one of the most difficult books and one of the most difficult periods in history, all the Bible, because you've got two simultaneous things going on in God's plan. Okay. Um, that conclusion... That last paragraph on page 16. Dispensational theology expressed another reformational wave in church history that expanded the authority of Scripture, especially in defining the nature and mission of the church. Dispensationalism, by separating the church from both ancient nation Israel and modern nation national states, remember Reformed theology has national churches, became the home of the modern missionary movement as well as the chief impetus of fundamentalism in America. Now those are two claims that you might, should be aware of. You never got this in, t in your history courses in school, I know. But there's two things here that are very important. And one of them is that the modern missionary movement came out of largely dispensational theology. Go look at a survey of who it was that started the big mission outfits and ask yourself, were they Reformed theologians or were they dispensationalists? Now, if we're such a group of cultic kooks, like Reformed theology likes to think of us, isn't it funny that this kookery spawned the largest expanse of missions in the history of the church? How do they do that? The second thing to notice is that fundamentalism in America was largely a product of dispensational theology. It lent sympathetic hearing to the emergence of the modern state of Israel and to the cause of Jewish missions. Its literal method of interpreting the biblical text also spawned the most of the modern creationist movement. So I've given you four historical points about dispensational theology. What are they? One... Go back through the sense, missionaries, missions. Number two, fundamentalism in America. Number three, sympathy with the modern state of Israel. And number four, Jewish missions. Now, people, some Jews can't get those last two straight. How can you be for Israel having its freedom and then here you are trying to proselytize Jews? Sorry, it goes together. Those are four important historical fruits of dispensationalism. Okay, next time, if you'll read Acts 2, we're going to get into Pentecost. Father, we thank you for our time together tonight. We thank you for your work down through the centuries of history, gradually building and edifying and maturing the church. 
And we pray that as we take our position in the historic sequence of men and women who have trusted in Jesus Christ, that we would not let the banner down in our day, but that we would fly it fully and with confidence and not be intimidated by a world that is constantly trying to deceive, constantly trying to put false ideas into our minds, constantly trying to pull us away from the Scripture. We thank you now that these things are possible through the operating assets that you've given the body of Christ. Through Jesus Christ, amen. A few minutes for some Q&A for those who want to hang around and uh, shoot questions. Yes, Tim. I think it is. Uh, the, the question is, uh, why is there such a resurgence of Reformed theology, particularly, by the way, in the Mid-Atlantic? Um, I've had people come here, uh, we've discussed this, and they say, uh, what's going on in Maryland, Pennsylvania? Um, it just seems like it's, it's pretty heavily concentrated right where we are. Um, I'm not sure why it's concentrated here, unless it's due to the fact that Maryland um, historically is a Catholic state, a Roman Catholic state, and many of the people in our evangelical Bible teaching churches are people who um, are really former Catholics. And as former Catholics, their exposure to Scripture has been so weak, uh, their background in the Bible is so, so poor, that they're seeking structure. And uh, let's face it, Reformed theology does give you a wonderful structure. Uh, it's a bastion of system that, that, um, uh, that gives... Uh, it's attractive intellectually. It really is. And it tends to attract people that think systematically. Um, the reason why I think, though, it, 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 it happens is because... In dispensational circles, very little dispensational is being taught. Um, I was just talking to our pastor. I said, you know, back, it was two, I think it was two years ago, I heard Dr. John Walberg, who is about 90 now, who was the chancellor of Dallas Seminary. And he was, he and Dr. Pentecost, who is in his 80s now, uh, the old guard, these are the guys that... Uh, when they die, we've lost that generation in the 20s and 30s that really founded a lot of, uh, taught a lot of men who found a lot of these Bible schools. And 
they, there was one of the young guys in the audience uh, was a young pastor, and he raised his hand and he asked Dr. Walbert, he says, you know, Dr. Walbert, why, what do you see? You know, you're, you're close to 90 years old now. You've had many, many decades to observe the Bible teaching movement. Um, what's your observations about today versus yesteryear? And Walbert's almost direct uh, answer to that question was, well, he says, you know, I don't see Bible churches having Bible conferences anymore. I don't see Bible churches having prophecy conferences anymore. It, it, the Bible is not emphasized. The teaching of Scripture is really not emphasized. We have Christian concerts. We have softball leagues. We have basketball time. These aren't bad. But if that's all you have, and you do not have a concerted, systematic teaching of Scripture, then if you remember Romans, uh, it says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Faith has no object. So you have hungry sheep getting battered around in life, and they just want something firm and structured. And Reformed theology gives it to them. Um, and I must say that, that, that it's, it's very attractive in many areas. And I'm not saying that all of it's bad. I mean, I, I've been very careful here to say that there's a much in Reformed theology to admire very deeply. Um, they are the guys that basically have given us our apologetic structure. Um, the thing that dispensationalists have done um, is really kind of shallow intellectually, frankly. Um, they've been... The, in schools that teach men for the ministry, there's been a total compromise in the last 40 years over teaching languages. I'll give an example. Um, back many years ago at Dallas Seminary, the Hebrew department was headed by a, a former Orthodox Jewish rabbi called Charles Feinberg. And Feinberg was this kind of a, he was a tyrant. I mean, everybody feared Dr. Feinberg because he demanded of his students what he had demanded as an orthodox rabbi. You will learn Hebrew, period. And you will have facility in Hebrew, such that in your final exam, I will ask you to stand up and read a portion anywhere out of the Hebrew Bible, and you will do that. Duh. <laughs> That's very hard, especially if you're like me, and languages don't come easy to me. Um, so that's the kind of thing that you had. And in order to get proficiency in the languages so that you use them. See, the problem is that a, a pastor, a typical pastor that does this teaching and preaching and sermoning, is so busy with everything else he's got to do that he's torn in a hundred ways. And, and congregations, frankly, can be very cruel to pastors this way and not even, and not even be aware of what they're doing. Because they want him, they get mad and angry uh, if, they, if the guy doesn't show up every time they have a problem. He's got to personally hold their hand. And, you know, what do we have deacons for? What do we have other elders for? No, what do these guys do? You know, what's that function? Not saying that the past, pastor can't physically do it. The pastor loves his congregation by equipping them so that when the jam and the circumstance comes, they are so well trained in the Word of God, they can handle themselves. It's not saying they won't need a little help, but they can't, you can't hold everybody's hand and prepare 
every week prepare an in-depth sermon from the Word of God that is consistent and theologically structured. I'm, I'm telling you, I was in the business. It takes, for, to do a good job in the pulpit for 45 minutes, takes you if, you, if you accumulate your hours, probably takes 40 to 50 hours of work minimum. As you get older in the ministry, it's like a teacher at school. When David, my son, third son, started teaching school, you know, the teachers always complain, the first year you're teaching, oh, what, a, what a thing it is, because every day you walk in class, you've got another lesson plan you've got to do, and then you've got another one, and then you've got to mark papers. And that poor teacher, the first or second year you're teaching, you're spending 12 hours a day doing it. But what happens? Third and fourth year, now you've got momentum. Now you've got your illustrations. Now you've got stuff that you can use. Now you've got vocabulary. Now you've got some of this. Well, it's the same thing in teaching and preaching. You've looked up so many Hebrew words. You've been in so many passages that you've got all the stuff that helps you. So that when you go to teach again now, it becomes a little easy. But the point I'm making is that you can't get there if you don't have proficiency. If you're sitting there every day looking up this word, looking up that word, you're never going to make it. You've got to be pushed, shoved, and motivated to get proficiency in the languages so that you can sit there and read Greek and Hebrew. And then that gives you the time to think through how there's nuances in this passage and so forth, and here's how we can fit it together in the, in the theology, and this is how, what the great creeds say, and so on and so forth. Well, there's a lot to this, and there's not in within either Reformed or the Dispensational Circuit today that in-depth infrastructure that can produce this. It really isn't there. And it's sad because even in the Reformed seminaries, uh, the kids are out doing Christian counseling, doing how to raise a big Sunday school. I'm thinking, gosh, you know, Machen and these other guys, 40 years ago, they knew about Sunday school. I mean, they, people had problems in that day. But if you look how they handled them, they handled them with a powerful theocentric message. And the bigger your God is, the smaller your problems are. And that's the name of it. And we got big problems today, people, because we have a very small God. So in all this restlessness, there's a cry and a hue for structure. Give me something to believe that works in the worst cases in my life. And Reformed theology is there. So that's, I believe, one of the real reasons why it's there. It's structured teaching. Not popular, but you'll find the people who are interested in that tend to be more serious Christians. That's correct. That, that's correct. There, yes, that's that's a correct observation, um, and it's also uh, true that in in Reformed circles today, now they, I guess it was always true though, when they train pastors in Reformed traditions you will usually find them topical preachers. Think, for example, of Boise. 
in Philadelphia here who just died of cancer. Uh, if you, he did some commentaries on books, that's true. But generally speaking, even when you look at the commentaries, it's, it's topical and it's doctrinal. So in their quest to be um, clear theologically, they do spend a lot of time doing that, and that's good because it does communicate. I mean, they're great when it comes to Jesus Christ, the scriptures, inspiration. But to get into the text of scripture is no small job. You don't just read three commentaries and crank out a lesson. That's not the way it goes. Um, there's a lot more to it than that. And it requires a lot of tools, and it requires a lot of training, and a lot of background. And, and frankly, a lot of the guys just don't have it. And, and the sheep suffer, and there's not a real press to change things. I mean, the, I know one little seminary out in California that's trying to do one marvelous work in exegesis, and <laughs> fumbling around with not really much support or interest. And so it's, it's kind of like a vicious cycle. There's no support to do it. There's nobody trained. So since there's nobody trained, it's not done because it's not done. And people aren't exposed to it. And then they don't know what they're missing and so forth. But to harp back to what I said was, I think that, that the resurgence of Reformed theology in one sense is a good thing in that it's, it's a sign that people are hungry for truth and structure. And all that's needed is in that situation is in some in-depth and consistent teaching of the Word of God. Which isn't going to happen unless there's a lot of study devoted to it and the study can't be devoted to it while the pastors are running this group, doing that meeting, doing this thing, in a building program. Sorry, that stuff doesn't get done. It's one or the other. Only 40 hours or 80 hours or whatever, 100 hours a week. And you have to assign priorities. So that's, that's one of the problems. Okay, well, next week we're going to get into uh, more controversy because we're going to deal with the issue of Pentecost and speaking in tongues and miracles of gifts and healing and all the rest of it. So.